Hey, welcome to the Africa Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today on the series, we are republishing one of our best episodes with Professor Rashid Khaldi. This is from a couple years ago. It's about his very important book, The Hundred Year War on Palestine. So if you haven't listened to this, or even if you have, honestly, there is so much good content here. So I encourage you to learn and listen and also check out the book. The reason why we are replaying this episode is because me and the rest of the staff are taking a break. This year has been super, super tough, and we need a reset for next year. So thanks for letting us take this break, and thanks for being so engaged and committed to the work that we do. A very special thanks for the 200 people who have signed up to become contributing members through our Reframe the Arab World campaign. Our work would not be possible unless you all believed in us and you contributed to what we're doing and supported our work through your contributions. You are keeping our systems going. You're helping pay for our staff. You're honestly making this all work. Thank you for believing us and making Afikra possible. We're trying to reframe the story about the region, and we can only do it together as a community. So thanks so much. With that, please listen to the episode. Let us know what you think. And we've been thinking about putting together like study companions for some of these really rich, dense episodes. Let us know if you think that's a good idea. Send us an email. Tag us on Instagram. Let us know. We want to make stuff that you would find useful. Okay. Thanks so much. See you in the new year. And we appreciate your support. Oh, and if you want to become a member, please, please, please join these people. Afikita.com slash membership. The more you support, the more we can do. Okay, so what you hear next is the interview from 2021. Obviously, a lot has changed since then, but sadly, many things are still the same. So that's what you're going to be jumping into right now. And if you'd like to follow along on YouTube, you can go find that original interview. Just search Rashid Khaldi Afikra and you'll find it. Um, thanks again, and let us know what you think of the interview. Um, welcome, everybody. My name is Mikey Mhenna. I'm the executive director of Afikra. It's great to see so many people from around the world on this very important call. It is my honor um, to introduce Professor Rashid Khalidi, who is the Edward Said Professor of Arab Studies in the Department of History at Columbia University. He's an author of many books, one of which we are going to be talking about today in detail, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. Rashid, thank you so much for joining our Fikita Conversations. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a, a, a thrill to see 476 people signed up for this and I'm ready to go. Yeah, the pleasure is ours. So thank you so much for taking this time to do this, especially in what are very trying times. I wanted to start, as I mentioned in the intro, you've written a lot and you've written a lot of books, but this book is different, both in its form and its scope maybe, but also in its genesis. Uh, I heard in an interview you talking about how your son insisted that you write this book and you approach it differently than you had done before. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's true. My son was very insistent in telling me that it was enough already with some of them up here with books that only another person with a PhD in history could love. And that I had to write something that was personal and that was approachable and that was relatable and that was for normal readers, not for my graduate students. And so with his constant goading and the constant goading of, of one of my cousins, I set out to do something I never did before, which is to insert myself into the narrative. It's a history, as the subtitle says, and it's full of documentation. There are dozens and dozens of pages of footnotes. But the idea was to write a book you could read without footnotes. 
the idea was to illustrate the, what I think are the sort of turning points in Palestinian history through events that had to do with real people, my grandparents, my father. There's a picture of my dad broadcasting for the UN. The guy, the gentleman on the far left seated is my uncle exiled to seashells. So I, I used those personal narratives as a way of bringing the reader into the history. And I eventually, as I got closer to the present, I used my own experiences, stories my parents told me or my grandparents or my aunts, uh, and eventually the things that I witnessed and experienced. And so it's completely different than anything I've written before. You're right. Yeah. Was the process of writing it or the discoveries that you found affecting, did it change? Did, you, did it lead to some discoveries about your understanding about these hundred years or... Was it just, did the book come out the way you expected it? Maybe I should say it that way. It actually came out very differently than I expected. And that's partly thanks to the many people who read it, including especially my editor. And it was not, it's not a, it's not a memoir. It's a history, but it's a history through personal experiences of mainly members of my family, but also members of other family, Yusuf Sayyid, my wife's grandfather, all kinds of people to whose records and to whose papers and to whose experiences and memories I had access. And it did come out differently than I thought. I thought it would be drier and more boring and more of a history. But under the constant prodding of Smail, my son, and others, I opened up a little bit and I wrote it completely differently than I otherwise would have. So yes, it was different than what I thought I would do. Okay, I'm going to jump around a lot because there's a lot in this book. So I apologize to anyone in the chat who thinks that I'm jumping around, but I'm doing that because I hope you finish my sentences and ask a question in the chat to finish the point. There's a lot, of, a lot to go through. So... There's an interesting thing that you notice when you look at the table of contents, the word declaration a lot, and that's obviously intentional. The book is split up between six periods and notably they're not the first period of war, the second period of war. It's the first declaration of war, second right. declaration of war. Who is declaring these wars versus who is waging these wars? And what point are you trying to really make here? I was trying to use this book to wrench the reader away from an entirely false narrative which would have it that this is just a tragic struggle between two peoples over the same land, right against right. That's complete balderdash. Yes, there are now two peoples. Yes, it's over the same land. But this has always been a war waged on the Palestinian peoples. It's not just a conflict. It's not just two parties. It's not Germany and France. This is a settler colonial project backed by the greatest powers in history, Britain, which, in fact, issues the first declaration of war. That's the Balfour Declaration. United States and the Soviet Union, they issue the second declaration of war, which is the partition resolution and so on. So what I'm trying to argue is that you have to understand it, first of all, as a resistance of a people to being displaced from its homeland by a project that's far bigger than the Zionist project. Important though, obviously the Zionist project is what it's all about in a certain sense. But without Britain, you would not have had what you had. Without the United States and the Soviet Union at a later stage, you would not have had what you had. And these declarations are in fact often international statements. The Balfour Declaration is later incorporated into the League of Nations mandate for Palestine. General Assembly Resolution 1947 is a resolution of the United Nations, and so on. So I was trying to talk about this as a war waged by multiple actors on the Palestinians in order to further the implantation of the Zionist project in their homeland. So what I'd love to be able to do is, especially for the uninitiated, those for whom these dates may not mean much, and we have 500 people on the call. Thousands of people will listen to this later. Can you just give a broad brush over of these six periods to really set the stage for the rest of the conversation? Sure, I'll do my best 
uh, to avoid yeah. taking up the entire time. Yeah. Very quickly, the first declaration of war is Lord Balfour's statement on behalf of the British cabinet that the British government looked with favor on the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. The only stipulation uh, beyond that, uh, one had to do with Jews in European countries and the other had to do with the existing non-Jewish population of Palestine. So Britain was saying, there's a people, a single people in Palestine, that's the Jewish people. And there's a single group that has national rights and political rights, that's the Jewish people. And then there are the non-Jewish communities, i.e. 95% of the population who are not a people, who are not entitled to national or political rights. They're entitled, according to the Balfour Declaration, to civil. And that was the basis of the Mandate for Palestine, which Britain implemented eventually with force. So the declaration was the Balfour Declaration. The war was Britain crushing the Great Revolt of 1936-39. Uh, I could talk about that if people have Yeah, we'll come back to that for sure. We'll um, the second declaration of war, you, you want me to go through the six, right? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, the second declaration of war was the Partition Resolution of 1947. This was bulldozed through the General Assembly by arm-twisting, bribery, blackmail, and pressure from the Americans and the Soviets. And what it did was to give more than half of an Arab country, a country with a 65% Arab majority, to a Jewish minority. Uh, it specified that an Arab state should also be formed in the bits that were left, but that state was never established in the UN. Americans, the Soviets did nothing to see to its establishment. The second declaration of war was basically a statement, we're going to establish a Jewish state here. And whatever else happens. And what happened was the Nakba. What happened was the expulsion and ethnic cleansing of three quarters of a million Palestinians. So that's the second declaration of war. I'm describing, in other words, UN General Assembly Resolution 181 as a declaration of war on the Palestinian people. The people who are entitled, according to the UN Charter, to self-determination are being denied it. And it's the a European, European, de the European Declaration again. It's an international declaration. Yeah. Similarly, the Balfour Declaration then is enshrined in a League of Nations mandate, which means it's an international declaration. Yeah. The third declaration of war has to do with the 67 war. And it is not really about the war between the Arab countries and Israel. Now, that's obviously extremely significant. It's about UN Security Council Resolution 242, which is adopted by the Security Council on November 22nd, 1967, and which basically eliminates the Palestinians just like the Balfour Declaration makes no mention of the Palestinians. 242 makes no mention of the Palestinians. What it basically does is give Israel everything at once. Of course, it's drafted by Lord Carradine, the British permanent representative, with Arthur Goldberg, the American ambassador, and Abba Iban, the Israeli foreign minister, essentially drafting it. And it gives Israel everything at once. I could go into the details, but I, what I'm arguing here is that these things that are seen as impartial, objective, international documents are in fact, in their essence, meant to further the Zionist project and to dispossess and ultimately remove, if possible, the Palestinians. The fourth declaration of war is the 1982 war. And here what I described is something that is a little bit similar to what happened in 67. Before Israel goes to war, it goes to Washington to get permission. Meyer Amit, the head of the Mossad, goes to Washington. He meets with Secretary of Defense McNamara in 67 and with President Johnson, and he gets a green light for Israel to go to war. Similarly, Israeli Minister of War Ariel Sharon goes to Washington in May 1982, meets with Secretary of State Haig, and gets a green light for Israel to invade a, a Lebanon. And for every single one of its objectives, we have the minutes of the meeting. 
And Sharon says, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And, and all it takes says is, be sure you have a good pretext. And the note taker says, green light for Israeli invasion. So that's the fourth declaration of war. The fifth declaration of war is a little more complicated because this is what I describe the Oslo process as. It's seen as a, a miraculous agreement between the Palestinians and the Israelis. There's an HBO film I was just asked to review called Oslo based on an appalling play of the same name, which I saw in New York and which made me nauseous, but which of course won a Tony Award and the liberal New York audience was just completely over the moon. Oslo amounted to sealing the possibility of Palestinian statehood and self-determination. Palestinian leaders thought that it would lead to a state. It was not meant to lead to a state. And I go into great detail. You don't have to read the footnotes, just read the narrative to make sure, I mean, the Americans and the Israelis went to great lengths to make sure that the processes of negotiation did not include statehood and sovereignty for the Palestinians. Those things were deferred to so-called final status talks, which were supposed to have taken place in the late 1990s, and which you may have noticed have never taken place 24, four or three years later. That's the fifth declaration of war. The sixth, sixth declaration of war involves Israel's continuous assaults on Gaza. Uh, at the time I wrote this book, I was talking about 2012, sorry, 2008, 2009, 2012, and most importantly, 2014, when Israel dropped 21 kilotons of high explosives, 50,000 artillery shells, 700 airstrikes in a period of seven weeks. They may have exceeded that this time. So if I were to write a new conclusion, I would extend that obviously to 2021. So that was the sixth declaration. Thank, thanks for that and for you getting through it in a few minutes. I want to talk a little bit about the first declaration. When I was first learning about this stuff as a kid, it seemed it's presented as this conflict, right? This balanced, maybe a balanced conflict. And exactly, maybe a little bit of this. Tiny, a tiny bit. Yeah, tiny bit. The narrative is that the Arabs keep on tripping on the bananas. They keep on slipping up. And well, part of the narrative is Arab hordes against tiny little itty-bitty isolated Israel. That's the original. Yeah. So in fact, it's imbalanced in favor of the Arabs, according to the original narrative. What's interesting, you start off the chapter, the first chapter, with a, a discussion of, about this letter that is written, that is an exchange between um, Yusuf Dia and Theodore Herzl. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because this is so foreshadowing. Had this letter gone viral, in 2021, if 1916 was 2021, where a letter like this could have gone viral, there's the whole thing, there's the whole yeah. book. I, I, yeah. I start the book with this letter, which is yeah. a letter that the gentleman you can see on the left, Yusuf Liyap Ashad Khaddi, who was former mayor of Jerusalem, he'd served as mayor several times, and a elected deputy for Jerusalem in the Ottoman parliament of 1877-78, wrote to Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern political Zionism. Her, this was in, in uh, 1898. It was a year after the first Zionist Congress in Basel. It was a couple of years after Herzl wrote his book, Der Judenstaat, The Jewish State. It's a m short monograph. It's not a big book. And uh, uh, Yusuf Leah had a couple of, uh, uh, there were a couple of characteristics which made him particularly sensitive to this. He had studied and taught in Vienna. He had been a diplomat in Vienna for the Ottoman Empire. He knew German. He got the Austrian papers. I saw them in the Chaldi library. 
You could only receive them through the censorship of Sultan Abdul Hamid if you were getting them through a foreign post office. So he obviously had those privileges. He knew what Zionism was. He knew that the lying, deceitful bromides, we don't intend to harm you, we're just coming here, blah, 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 were lying, deceitful bromides. He understood that the idea was to create a Jewish state with a Jewish majority, control of immigration, and sovereignty at the expense of his people. So he writes to Herzl, and he says, I have enormous sympathy for the Jews. I understand how badly you've been persecuted. We're cousins. We're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Ismail. We uh, have enormous sympathy for you. And I can understand where Zionism is coming from, but there's a, pr a couple of problems here. One of them is this is a country that's already inhabited by people who will not voluntarily give it up. The other is there are Ottoman Jews who live in peace and who you're going to completely disrupt with this project. So for the sake of God, he says, it's the letters in French, for the sake of God, leave Palestine alone. And what's really interesting is not that in 1898, writing from Istanbul, Yusuf Dia had this perception. What's interesting is that Herzl responds. And Herzl basically gaslights him. He whitewashes. He basically says, oh, we have no intentions to harm the Arabs. He even says, we don't, we don't intend to remove the Arabs. And in fact, Yusuf Dia had never mentioned removing them. He obviously has a guilty conscience because in his diaries, Herzl is writing about spiriting the Arab population across the frontiers. He intends to remove them because you cannot create a Jewish majority state in an Arab majority country without doing something about that majority. So he already had this in his mind. And, and Yusuf Dia's letter triggered this guilty response. But basically, he blows off. And what I argue is, first of all, that a lot of Palestinians had figured this stuff out earlier than many people realize. And they figured it out more and more as time went on. And secondly, that the Hasbara, the propaganda, whether it's self-deceit or just an attempt to deceive others, goes right back to the very beginning. Just to add some, some numbers to those, to what you're suggesting, what is the proportion of um, Arabs living in Palestine at the time of the Balfour Declaration? percentage-wise? I think you said something like 90, 94%. It's in, it's in the low 90s, maybe 94, 93, 95%. Uh, a lot of uh, Jews who had foreign passports and were citizens of belligerent powers when the Ottoman Empire entered the war were obliged to leave. So Russian citizens, French citizens, British citizens. So the population probably went down to maybe 96, 5, 4% of the total probably around five or six. The Arab population, in other words, the indigenous population, including Arab Jews, was about 94, 95%. And if we get to the, I, I want to get to the second, the second declaration. So one of the things that I was surprised by in reading this is that the Nakba, according to your book, this war, the 1947 expulsion, was largely done, if I get this right, by the British. Is that right? Do I have that? Do I have that understanding correct? Not exactly. The Nakba was made possible by the British. In that sense, you're right. By crushing Palestinian resistance in the late 30s and into the early 40s, by killing, wounding, imprisoning, or exiling 10% of the adult male population, by confiscating thousands of arms, by killing leaders, executing them in the field, hanging them, or exiling them. My uncle sent off to the seashells. Jamal Husseini sent to Kenya, and so on and so forth. The British crushed the Palestinian national movement. At the same time, they were arming the militias of the Zionist movement. The Palmach is created by a British officer, a man named Ord Wingate. It's trained 
to cut people's throats, blow up houses over their heads, and so on. They're called night squads. Uh, Ord Wingate was considered insane by his colleagues. They thought he was a maniac, a murderous maniac. General Montgomery, Ford Field Marshal Montgomery, thought he was insane. He died during World War II, Wingate. They were arming and training and organizing these militias to help them fight as auxiliaries, to help them fight the Palestinians in the night. And so what happens thereafter, at a point when Britain begins to deviate from its support from the Zionist movement, is that the Zionist movement now has the wherewithal to conquer Palestine. The Palestinians have been crushed, and they have the military wherewithal. And they move to Moscow and Washington for support, having given up on Britain. The actual work of the Nakba is carried out, of course, by uh, Israeli militias, Zionist militias before May 15, 1948, when the state is established, and by the Israeli military uh, after the state is established. But the militias become the army. The organizations that were set up by the, the, with help of the British, the governmental organizations in the 20s and 30s, become the government of the state of Israel. Okay, we're going to keep going because I want to talk about 1967, especially when you start talking about assassinations. Walk me through, if you will, how this declaration of war is definitively different than the first two, because it is, and it's worth um, clearing up that misunderstanding. It's different and it's similar. It's different because now we have the UN Security Council instead of the General Assembly or the League of Nations. It's different because Israel is acting with American support, but it's Israel. It's not the British army as in the 30s. And it's different because what is being done is to elide, to erase the Palestinians. If you read the text of what is supposed to be the basis for peacekeeping in the Middle East, Security Council Resolution 242, the word Palestinian doesn't occur. All of the things the United Nations had mandated after 1948, refugee return and compensation, Jerusalem as a capital, as a would be a capital for both peoples, Israeli withdrawal, back to the lines that were set down in the partition plan. During the 1948 war, Israel took over more of the country than the 55% that had been allotted to it under the partition plan. All of those things that the UN had mandated between 48 and 67 are removed. Now it's land for peace. And land for peace is basically Egypt, Syria, uh, and, and Jordan are supposed to uh, make peace with Israel, and they will get back some, but not all of the occupied territories. And there is supposed to be a just solution of the refugee problem, which refugees, Eskimos, Native American, Jewish refugees, not specified. Sorry, go ahead. I want to ask about that. Yeah. So the, the, this is a resolution which basically meets all of the Israeli desiderata. A couple of years later, Golda Meir says, there is no Palestinian people. They never existed. In 69, she said that. And, and this resolution expresses that ambition and view. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. No, that's precisely what I want to talk about. Because... At first glance, you'd think, obviously, we're not talking about Eskimos. Maybe we don't need to specify it, but it belies a, a deeper philosophy, which is there are no, there's no such thing as Palestine. Right? Exactly. So why would we give it a name? Why would we speak exactly. the same exactly. in writing in the very tool we're using to justify, to create power? We won't say its name in these international agreements, which are actually our, our fuel source. Exactly. And what Israel wanted to do was to turn what was originally a conflict over Palestine and over Palestinian rights into a state-to-state -state conflict, where the Palestinians don't exist, where their claims and rights are not considered, and where all they are is a refugee problem to be solved by a charitable, condescending means, uh, ideally from an Israeli perspective, resettlement. And 242 achieves that. 
So I want to come back to the, the fourth and the fifth and the sixth in a little bit, because I want to ask a few questions and then come back to it. You introduced this concept to me called Met, named Metropole. And I want to read a piece of the book. In the book, you say, after 1917, the Palestinians found themselves in a triple bind, which may have been unique in the history of resistance to colonial settler movements. Unlike most other people who fell under colonial rule, they, had, they not only had to contend with the colonial power in the metropole, in this case, London, but also with the singular, singular colonial settler movement that, while beholden to Britain, was independent of it, had its own national mission, a seductive biblical justification, and then established international base of financing. So my question is- I also uh, mentioned that it, yeah. they were also facing the fact that the League of Nations sanctioned all of this. Yeah. So you had Britain, you had the Zionist movement, and you had the League of Nations, all arrayed against the Palestinians. The metropole doesn't stay the same over time. It shifts. Exactly. How and why is it shifting over 100 years? Um, and even putting great question, some strange, strange bedfellows together, walk me through this. I don't understand it. This is a great question, Mikey. Most colonial settler movements are extensions of a metropolitan power. The British subjects who settle in North America are British. The mother country, the metropole, is Britain. The French settlers in Algeria, Algeria becomes an extension of France. The Dutch settlers in South Africa are an extension of the Netherlands, and so on. They want to remain part of the mother country. They are, they are tied by an umbilical cord to the mother country. When they're cut off, as the Boers were, and the British take over, all kinds of other things happen. But basically, colonial settler movements involve an extension of a metropolitan power's population into a, a colonized country where the indigenous population is replaced to a larger or greater extent. In some cases, they're put to work, as in Algeria, and the settlers take all the good land. In other cases, as in North America and Australasia, most of them are exterminated. So there are different kinds of colonial settlements. Zionism is unique. The people who went to Palestine in furtherance of the Zionist project were not British. They enjoyed the support of Britain after 1917. They had tried to find other sponsors. Herzl went to the Sultan in Istanbul. So Herzl went to France. Herzl went to Russia. They went to various countries to try and find an external sponsor. But they were always an independent, as I say in the, in the quotation, they were independent of Britain. They had their own national mission and they had an established international base. The Zionist movement was based abroad. It wasn't based in Palestine. Their congresses were held in Basel and other European capitals. Their money came from abroad, Europe and the United States, all of it. And the settlers came from Europe. You put your finger on something really interesting, which is uniquely, it, it's not unique for settler colonial projects to have differences with the metropole. The settlers in Algeria were furious with the French when the French state realized it couldn't hang on to Algeria. And so they started carrying out terrorist bombings, the OAS, uh, Organisation Armée Secrète, whatever it was called. Ian Smith declared, made a unilateral declaration of independence of Rhodesia from Britain. Patrick Henry. George Washington declared their independence of the mother country. That kind of thing happens. In, in term, but as far as Zionism is concerned, Britain is not the mother country. Britain is just a temporary metropole. And as soon as they had problems with the British in 1939, I can talk about why, they shift over to other external sponsors. The United States, where they already had a powerful base, and Soviet Russia. And then they shift yeah. again and again at later stages. So I want maybe you can answer this later, but I'm wondering if if it's possible to have, have uh, long-lasting peace if the Palestinians don't have a similar sort of metropole 
to be able to support and finance their resistance? We can leave that question for later. I'm curious about that, but I want to ask. We're, we're not a settler colonial movement. We're an indigenous population. We need external help, certainly, if we can get it. So but we're in a fundamentally different position than this project that is implanted finance. I talk in the book about the amount of money, more capital was coming in to the Zionist institutions in Palestine in the 20s than the entire GDP of the Jewish sector of the economy. Imagine how much capital that involves and imagine what you can do with that kind of money. That's what you need to do in order to implant a settler colonial movement. You need a, what, what Jabotinsky, this Zionist leader, called an iron wall to protect you from the natives and you need a lot of money. Okay. I want to keep going because you started to speak, you started to speak to this already. In the book, again, towards the end, you say settler colonial confrontations with in indigenous people have only ended in one of three ways. With one, so one, with the elimination or full subjugation of native populations as in North America. Two, with the defeat and expulsion of the colonizer as in Algeria, which is extremely rare. Or three, with the ab abandonment of colonial supremacy in the context of compromise and reconciliation as in South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Ireland. Which of these you think is on the table and which are we, should we really be pointing to and trying to model ourselves? I know you're a historian and you don't like to project the future, but walk me through that a little bit. I frankly think the first two options are unlikely, but unfortunately possible. The extirpation or expulsion of the Palestinians or more Palestinians could only take place in some very peculiar circumstances, but it's not completely invisible. The defeat and expulsion of the colonizer is also very unlikely given that Israel is a nuclear power. Israel has extraordinary technological and material and military capabilities. And Israel is very well supported by, in particular, the United States and Europe, which basically serve as, as a metropole for this project today in the 21st century. So distant though it may seem, I would guess that the third is maybe more likely than the other two, but when and how that might happen, I wouldn't even dream of telling you. I don't know. There is this idea of sort of pathway to, you, you look at a hundred years worth of information and at the end you say, okay, there is some semblance of hope. There is some pathway forward that we should be focused on. The road is long, the moral arc of the universe bends towards equality. And you focus on these three things as almost like a, a recipe um, for things that might work. And the last one is this idea of foregrounding the issue of inequality. I feel like to talk about today, I feel like that, that is what is happening right now in social media, in mainstream media. We are starting to see small little nudges in that direction. Do you feel that as well, especially as somebody who has a broader scope? Is this a significant tick in that direction or is this imagined on my part? You're on mute. Rashid, you're on mute. Let me quickly say two things. The first is that if you go back to the earlier slide, what I said is to understand the question, these are the three approaches. The precondition for all of this is continued resistance. And without that, this wouldn't work. You could understand it and it would be lost, a lost cause. The reason it's not a lost cause is the one part of the subtitle of the book, the continued resistance of the Palestinians. Sometimes successful, sometimes unsuccessful, but they have not given up, obviously. So to answer your question, in fact, I think what's happening now has happened in microcosm before. Every time there is a massive outbreak of violence, which is always disproportional, which is all, always pro, brings enormous suffering on the Palestinians. And I'm referring to 1982, the 1982 
war on Lebanon, the siege of Beirut, the Sabra and Shatira massacres. I'm referring to the first Intifada. I'm referring to the 2014 and other wars on Gaza, which we're now seeing reprised. The old journalistic adage, it lead when applies. And the media, the mainstream corporate media, which have provided and provide normally a shield against reality, a veil, an Israeli weave woven veil full of lies and deceits and bromides, suddenly is torn asunder because people can't unsee what they're seeing. You're seeing the capital of an Arab country bombarded by Israel in 1982. You can't unsee that. And it goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. You're seeing people massacred. You can't unsee that. You're seeing buildings being brought down in Gaza today. The problem is what Israel has done. There's a brilliant book by Amy Kaplan, Our American Israel, where she, a, a cultural historian who sadly has passed away, where she talks about this. What the Israelis have managed to do in every previous instance is to reweave. So people saw things in 82 that made them understand. And slowly but surely, the Israelis made them forget or helped to make them forget. The Israelis and their friends in the media and in American politics. I think we may be seeing something different now. I'm not sure. I'm sure that the pendulum is swinging in our direction right now. There's no question about that. And there are basic reasons for it. There are superficial reasons for it. Uh, I'm not sure that it won't swing back again, as happened after every one of these instances I'm, ta I'm talking about. Okay. I don't want to hog this entirely because I want to open up to questions. If there's time at the end, then I will get to that. I do want to make a plug for you. Uh, I highly recommend people check out the work at the Institute of Palestine Studies. Rashida has done a lot of public intellectual stuff, writing quite prolifically. I highly recommend the people on the call check that stuff out. Let's open it up. To let, let, me, let me give one quick plug for the Journal of Palestine Please. Studies, which I co-edit with Shane Saidi. One reason we are breaking through on a certain level is the number of people who are reading the journal and downloading articles. In 2019, there were 220,000 downloads of full articles from the journal. In 2020, there were 331,000 downloads of articles. A half a million people are reading serious, in-depth scholarship about Palestine, what they're learning. And I think that's happening on multiple levels. You can look at the books on my bookshelf. There are dozens of books published every year on Palestine. And that is beginning to have an effect. It's not just me. There's scores yeah. of people doing this work. Let me actually ask you one final question. <clears throat> at Afikra, we are as um, concerned with understanding as we are with misunderstanding. Your books have a varied set of constituents. I'd be curious to understand, to hear you talk about what is maybe the most persistent misunderstanding from two sets of audiences. One from an American audience who is interested in your work, not cynically, but is uncynically interested in your work, authentically interested. And one, an Arab audience who, again, is authentically interested in your work. What is a persistent misunderstanding that you feel like you keep on having to iron out? I, I actually tried to address some of the American misunderstandings in the title and subtitle of the book. It's not a contest between equals or Germany and France. There's one actor that is a settler colonial project that is oppressing the Palestinians, is trying to displace them, replace them, eliminate them as a political factor. And there's another, which is fighting back. If you accept that framing instead of the, the bogus framings that have prevailed, you understand something fundamental about this. What's going on is not terrorism, it's resistance. It's resistance to an unending war on the Palestinians. As far as an Arab audience, it's more complicated. What's very hard for an Arab audience to understand, and it was hard for Native Americans, it was hard for First Nations in Canada, is to understand that what we're dealing now with is not 
a nascent settler colonial project. It's a fully fledged developed settler colonial project, which has created a national entity. And we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. And that's very hard for Arabs and Palestinians to accept. Even the most enlightened have difficulty in accepting the idea that this is a group that by force, by, by external support, by assassination, by ethnic cleansing, has developed a communal identity. And that if there's going to ever be peace, it's not going to result, be a result of our being expelled or their being expelled. It's going to be a result of our figuring out how to square that circle of having two collectives in one small country. I'm agnostic as to how that is supposed to happen. I don't really care as long as there is, as, as was clear from the slide that you put up a, a minute ago, complete equality. Complete equality. They have the national rights. We have national rights. They have sovereignty. We have sovereignty. Or it's fully shared. They have property rights. We have property rights. They have religious rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't care how that is, how that's actualized. I really don't care. One state, two states, cantons, bi-state, bi-national. I don't really, we're far away from that anyway. We have a one-state Zionist solution right now. There is and has been since 1967 one state in Palestine, one sovereignty, one security authority, one population registry. You can't have a kid in Palestine unless they accept to put the kid on the population registry. Until and unless all of that changes and how it changes, I don't know. I'm a historian. I'm talking about the past and the present. I'm not talking about the future. We're not going to have this. This is going to stay the way it is. Okay, thanks. Maisa pasted the chat, the questions, and I believe we're starting with Mediam. Mediam, are you there? Hi. Am I audible? You're audible. Please, uh, if you can, please be brief. I'm from Lahore, Pakistan. My question is, the revolution is always led by resistance and resilience. For those of us who want to learn the history that matters and is biased, how do we engage in this discourse to break the wheels of what's happening in Palestine? I'm So how do I learn about the history that's affecting them and be a part of the change and do my part? That's actually quite a hard question. Educating yourself is not an easy thing because the information is not always easily accessible. And some of it is not very good. I, if you were in the United States, I would recommend a whole bunch of books and a whole bunch of things that might be easily available. In Pakistan and in other parts of the world, it might be more difficult. But basically, to change things, you have to be knowledgeable about why we are where we are and about the history and about the, the politics and, and what's going on. And that's really all I can suggest. I know that sounds... A, superficial answer. But, you know, if you're in a university and your university has access uh, to JSTOR and you can get articles from the Journal of Palestine Studies, I recommend you read those. There are many books, Edward Said's writing, my writing, there are many others, Brahim Abu Lourdes writing. There are many people who have written really good stuff. And there are many much younger people than me or the late Edward Said or the late Brahim Abu Lourdes. I can also make a plug for the Africa Library if you're looking for things to, to check out. Okay, who's up next? Let's see. Sia, you're up next. Okay, so thank you, Professor Khalidi. This has been a very like interesting discussion. My question doesn't relate back to your work, to your book precisely, but touches on your scholarship that studies and traces the Palestinian identity. So my research interests are more directed towards women's studies. And I, so I wonder whether um, you'd regard there be a dominant male-gendered identity when speaking of the Palestinian identity. And if you're looking into these identities that we see on screen in film, would it be possible to argue that with the dominant masculine essence infusing and infused within this Palestinian identity, that we may be causing this alienation of women, Palestinian women? 
Or is it that the Palestinian identity has become so tied to the identity that is the land, which is ungendered, that it goes beyond all hierarchies? Question. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Asya. For one thing, land is often seen in gendered terms as Mother Earth or a mother. There are lots of posters, for example, showing women in tobes with their, as trees with their roots in the soil and woman as rooted in, in the earth in Palestinian land. But just to your broader question, there's no question that like many liberation movements, the Palestinian liberation movement has benefited from the efforts of women going back to the 20s and 30s has relied on women at crucial stages. There's a wonderful uh, movie about the Intifada, the first Intifada that shows that brilliantly. Uh, Mayhem and the Intifada, I forget the title. And then has cast them aside as the Algerian revolution cast aside the women who were crucial to its success or has sidelined them or has given them a secondary role. So certainly that happens. But I think you're asking an even deeper question about the gendered nature of identity and I have to honestly tell you, that's not actually something I've thought about. And I think you may be right that there's an element to it. And I don't know, I would have to think very hard to answer your question seriously about what impact that, that has. It's a really interesting question. You should write about it. Great. Thanks, Asya. Okay, Michael Bell is up next. Hi there. My question is, how important is hope? Absolutely vital. I think you always have to look at the long term when you're talking about Palestine, because the short term is often very grim. I've been all, through a lot of these episodes myself. There's a picture of Sam Kenefendi's funeral. I, I was in that funeral. I know a lot of these people who've been assassinated or who were killed, martyred at different stages of the struggle. And I've been involved. I was in Beirut in 82, and I've been involved in Palestinian politics. And I've seen, I've seen victories. I've seen defeats. You have to always have a sort of a long-term vision. I think you have to always understand that there's something really important about this conflict, which was actually best summed up by Tony Judd. Zionism represents a 19th century project that was being actualized in the 21st, in the 20th century. He died in the 20th century. It's still true in this century. When those ideas, those moans of colonial settler appropriation are outmoded. And I think that has to be a source of hope in the long run. You can't get away with that. Now, had they expelled all of us in the, 18, in the 1700s, had they expelled all of us in the first half of the 19th century, they might have gotten away with it, as happened with Native Americans, as happened with peoples all over the globe at earlier stages of history. But in the post-World War II era of decolonization, it's very hard. And that's a source of hope. You, uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that you, you turned that one around at the very end. Okay, I think Zena's up next. Hello. Yeah, can you hear me? Hey. I yeah. hear you. Awesome. Thank you so much for this. I just wanted to ask, obviously, speaking about obviously the pendulum shift and the changing narrative and whatnot. I just wanted to ask about the role of Palestinian leadership within all of that for the movement, not the existing one there. And I feel to take it to the next level, that needs to be a very sort of vital thing that we need to, as a grassroots movement or us people that are talking now, really work on um, um, on that. So how do you see it play out when a leadership is non-existent? Um, if you take a long view and you look back at 100 years of Palestinian history, there have been periods when the Palestinians have suffered from poor leadership, and this is one of the worst. It's as bad as the period right after 1948, when the Palestinian national movement looked like it had dissolved. 
What's happening now is in some ways worse because the Palestinian national movement is extremely ineffective in terms of putting forward a strategic vision and is completely divided, fragmented between Gaza and the West Bank, between inside and the outside, between Hamas and Fatah. Some of this is the work of Israel and much of it is our own work, right? That is to say the work of Palestinian leaders who preferred their own sectarian political interests over the shared collective interest of the Palestinian people. However, one of the most encouraging things that I've watched over the past decade and more of completely ineffective Palestinian leadership. What is Hamas objective? What is Fatah's objective? Where are they going? Where is their vision? What are they telling the world? Nothing. They have no strategy. They have no vision. They are not telling anybody anything. And in a sense, given the complete political bankruptcy of both groups, it's probably a good thing. Into that vacuum, Palestinian civil society has stepped. Whether it's PACB, whether it's students, whether it's BDS, whether it's people tweeting stuff, whether it's not organized, it's not centralized, it's not coordinated. Some of it is, obviously BDS is coordinated. Students for Justice in Palestine, they have some coordination. But basically, Palestinian civil society has done all the work in the last 15 or 20 years. The so-called leaderships have harmed the Palestinian cause, in my view, significantly, all of them, without exception. And they've done nothing to further the cause, nothing. They've pushed it backwards. But the cause is advanced thanks to these efforts by Palestinian civil society, elements of Palestinian civil society. The Shabab, the people who are demonstrating now, the strike, the, I, I could go on and on about that. Now, this is not sufficient. There needs to be a Palestinian strategy. There needs to be a reunification of and reestablishment of the Palestinian national movement, obviously. How that happens, I don't know. When that happens, I don't know. Who takes the lead, I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. The entire leadership is defunct. They are out of their league. I'm not just talking about Abu Mazen. These are people who should be retired. They should have the dignity and self-respect to retire, but they should be retired. They're, they represent two, two and a half or three generations ago, whether it's Hamas or Fatah, which, whether the PA or, or the lot in Gaza. Uh, they have nothing to offer the Palestinian people uh, except a more suffering. And it's time to figure out a new way to articulate a Palestinian strategy, I would argue based on equality. I would argue agnostic as to how that's achieved. I would argue, which has one foot in the diaspora and one foot in occupied Palestine, one of the greatest, of the many mistakes he made, one of the greatest mistakes Yasser Arafat made was to take the leadership almost in its entirety of the Palestinian national movement and put it under Israel's boot heel in Gaza and the West Bank. Who does that? What did they thought they had liberated Palestine in 1993 because he was given the, the pleasure of shaking Rabin's hand on the White House portico? So I think that a whole new way of thinking about this is necessary. Uh, I don't have the answer. I'm not gonna, I can't tell you what it should be, but we need a new, an entirely new approach to this question of leadership. Okay, our last question comes from Lema, who is actually a past Afikra presenter and is a high schooler in Ramallah. So it, it's just absolutely amazing. So Lema, are you there? Hey, um, Hi. thanks for such a very beautiful so my question was, how much of an effect do you think would the global response to the current events in Palestine have, like to our cause in general? Repeat the question, Lama. I'm sorry. How, how much, much effect will it have? Yeah, on our cause in general. Because as far as I know, it, it's an unprecedented global response. Right. I think one effect may, may have really long 
lasting results. And that's the sense that the Palestinians everywhere have once again of being united as one people. The way in which 48 Palestinians, Palestinian citizens living under Israeli rule, the way in which people in Jordan, the way in which people in Lebanon, the way in which people in the West Bank responded to Jerusalem showed that those central issues of displacement, Sheikh Jarrah, and Israeli brutal violence to, to break the Palestinians, firing tear gas grenades and stun grenades into Masjid Aqsa while people are praying in Ramadan, a provocation like that just lit the entire Palestinian people up. And I don't know if that's going to continue in the same, with the same vigor, with the same force. I don't know. A job description of a historian does not include predicting the future. I don't know. But I would guess that that might be a, a, a stepping stone, which might last. I would suggest that some of the changes that are taking place in international and especially American public opinion, particularly among young people, are lasting. I've watched this evolution. I've been teaching in the United States since we came back from uh, Beirut in, in the mid-1980s. And things have changed a lot in 35 years. I, I, I teach hundreds of students a year. And things have changed enormously in the American Jewish community, among blacks, among LGBTQ people, among you name it. In almost every group of American society to which I have access, there have been massive changes in the way in which they view the conflict over time. There's a pendulum effect. The effect of 2014 mobilized people, and that, that decreased after a time. But basically, something is changing. You have in Congress today a group that supports Palestinian rights. There were individuals, there were one or two or three members of Congress over the past, going back to Woodrow Wilson, going back to World War I, who may have supported Palestinian rights. 24 members of Congress co-sponsored Betty McCollum's bill to prevent USAID from being used to detain children. She has a more vigorous bill in the current session of Congress, and she's gonna have 30 or more co-sponsors. Every one of the 20 co-sponsors of the bill in the last Congress that ended in January of this year was re-elected. Every single one. EPAC would have loved to knock them all out. Not one lost their seat. So those are changes that I think are, are going to lead to incremental progress. There will be reverses in the 2022 midterm elections. I don't know what's going to happen. The media has ways of pushing back. I did a podcast with the Washington Post after I wrote an op-ed for them, the, editor, the editors are blocking it from being published. It's not like the censors and the filters and the, the pro-Israel folks are going to lie down on the job. Uh, my book disappeared from Amazon for 24 hours, the, the Hundred Years' War. We still don't know how it disappeared. Uh, so did books by Edward Said on Palestine, Nora Arekat on Palestine, Mark Lamont Hill on Palestine. There's all kinds of nasty stuff that can be done to derail some of these changes. But I think those changes are, many of them are likely to be it's not permanent, long-lasting. Rashid, if you want me to walk down the street giving out copies, I'm, I offer my services. I, I, I wish people would buy the book. It's not that I want the money, but I want them to have copies. But give them, you can give them away. Yeah, sure. Rashid, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, for your scholarship, for your clarity. I really appreciate Personally, appreciate your work tremendously. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. And thanks to you, you and to all your colleagues who made this possible. I really appreciate it. Okay. Be well. Bye, everybody. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, again, if you'd like to watch it on YouTube, head over to YouTube. Just search Afikra Rashid Khaldi. You'll see the full interview. Um, again, thanks so much for listening and for being a part of Afikra and part of this movement. If you'd like to contribute, 
please join at afikra.com slash membership. Thanks to all of you who are already members. Without your support, we wouldn't be able to do all of this. So see you after the new year. Our staff will be back in the studio working hard and making more of this stuff. All right, everybody. I hope